Welcome to Dreamers and Unicorns, brought to you by People Strong. Hey, Ginny, who do we have today? Well, Abhijit, today our guest is author and founder of Biz Pundits, Anita Bhogle, and cricket commentator and journalist Harsha Bhogle, who are also founders of The Winning Way. You can talk to them about leadership lessons from sports. Okay, great. Let us start the show. The Olympic motto is Sitia Saltius Fortius, which means faster, higher and stronger. Now, what if we applied the same philosophy to the world of work, workers and workplaces? Hi, I'm Abhijit Bhadri and I work with organizations to transform their leadership, talent and culture. Today in the studio, my guests are Anita Bhogle and Harsha Bhogle. They are a couple who have actually had a ringside view of sports legends and this whole culture of winning. Let's learn from that. So, hi, Harsha and Anita. Welcome to the show. When you look at uh, your career, you know, people often say that you should plan out everything and that's the best way to achieve success. Is it true for you? How much of it was planned? How much of it was not planned? I'd love to say it was, <laughs> uh, but but it wasn't. Some Sometimes, as in, in Hyderabad, when we were growing up, people would say, karke dekho mia. So things happened. At, at, remember, we, we made those choices at a time when we didn't have too many choices. So things evolved, things happened. But certainly in my life, one of the things that, that, was, that was critical was once you've decided to do something, then you've got to try and be the best at it because you're giving up too much to be doing, to be doing something else. So I, I wanted to be in advertising. I, I, I did my first couple of years in advertising and then moved on from there. But things happened far more than you made them happen. But the objective always was that once things happen to you, you 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 make sure you that you're giving it everything you've got at all times. So it, things didn't things weren't planned as precisely as a lot of young people today plan their careers and they say two years from now I want to be in an MNC, four years from now I want to be in a startup, six years from now I want to be there. No, because that roadmap didn't exist. In your case, you've had uh, a shift from you know the world of academic statistics um, and then you moved into completely yeah. different space yeah so it's been an interesting journey I started off in advertising as well but uh, and I was doing really well but somewhere Harsha's uh, career took off in uh, commentary and writing and stuff and so I had to kind of you know make the best under those circumstances because my kids were born and so I had to raise them as well and there were many things that I couldn't do uh, in those days, you know, you, you said I was a quant person. And it's so interesting that, you know, we were in the era of the mainframes. And so if you had to do any kind of quant work, you had to work for a large company. Mm. There were no PCs and laptops and things that you could. And so therefore, I moved to qualitative research and, and consultancy and stuff like that. I'm, I'm sure it wasn't an easy move to make because she's she's very quant. You know, in most, in most households, a guy is the quant for if you... Stereotype, stereotype, people. yeah, absolutely. I was exactly the opposite. She's the, she's the quant. I'm the pfeffer. Wow! <laughs> <laughs> but both of you had MBAs, and so you As know, happened, MBAs yes. will always do market analysis and say this is really the spot where uh, you know a lot of opportunities exist. And did you really do it like that? Because some of your choices, you became a gig worker before the term gig worker mm -hmm. was even really commonplace. Yeah. So you know, when we started off the winning way. 
which was much later, I mean, and there's a line that we use which says, you know, don't let what you cannot do interfere with what you can do. And that's really been the philosophy of our lives because there were many things that various stages that we couldn't do. So, you know, we were in the wrong era. We weren't in the gig economy. We weren't in today's time. So there weren't too many flexi options, work from home options and things like that. So I was one of the early ones. And a lot of youngsters tell me that, you know, women who knew me in advertising, that I was really the one who kind of, you know, started it. So uh, I did whatever was possible, whatever was best for the family unit and kept the career go, you know, going. Mm. And people say that, you know, every 10 years, now people say every 10 years you've got to kind of, you know, um, do something different. It just happened to me. Life happens. What, what were those inflection points when you look at it? Yeah, so, so the first uh, 15 years or so were in advertising, research, consultancy, things like that. And then we started off the winning way. Uh, and we still do the winning way. So it's really been a very successful program. So we made a business out of it. Uh, so that's based on your book, is it? Uh, it it's is, not. Yes. The book is actually based, based on the on, sessions. On, oh, so yeah. okay. The Once sessions we, came first, yeah. The sessions came first. I oh, always yeah. thought that it was the other no, way. The sessions no. came first. And then we actually debated about whether the session should become a book or no, for fear that we might be saying everything we know in the book and people may not be too interested in the sessions thereafter. It actually became a multiplier. Tell me about for, that, because you sessions. kind of, uh, in some senses, that philosophy that, you know, look at what is it that you can do well, uh, build that into the work that you are yes. doing. And uh, you've, uh, Harsha, always done commentary, mm. and then you sort of moved into um, video, you moved into YouTube, you moved into Twitter, yes. many different things. How has sports, how have those lessons applied to you in your life? For me, the biggest thing you learn in sport is that you will fail. Everybody fails. The giants fail. They fail. Everyone fails more often than they succeed. It's what you do when you fail that matters more than what you do when you're up because you will, you will fail. And I think for the younger generation, far there's so much emphasis on success that a lot of them cannot handle failure. And sport will tell you that, yes, yes you will fail, but there is tomorrow morning. And, and that's what I learned from sport. Uh, it it helped that both of us had had done had done management courses because there was always a backup, and and the, the winning way was a wonderful parallel stream for me for what I was doing, and I I thought that the fact that we had a credible background in management, both of us helped launch the winning way, and because we had a career in sport as well, we were able to marry the two and almost sort of pioneer a genre in, in, in to that extent. So you, you get a lot of you look you get a lot of cricketers coming and talking about sport, but very few have been able to marry the two, and that is what uh, uh, the the management degree gave. It also sport also taught me to be very nimble. That if you are in a sense the outsider in the world of broadcasting, then you should be able to do everything. You can't take you you don't have the option of saying no. You always have to say yes to everything that comes because you're the survivor. You have to say yes. So where did you really fail where you applied that lesson? Oh, you fail every day in television. In television, you fail every day. You make mistakes every day. You commit blunders from time to time. But but also from time to time, there are obstacles in your path. Without realizing it, sometimes there's competition that comes in. There's, there's former players who are always... Uh, was always put on a pedestal and you've not been that former player. I remember telling somebody that I don't have a test cap, but my I am on the word degree is my cap. I may not do what you can do, but you can't do what I did. And so you'll find that there was always at all times the desire to put a cricket player in 
And so you always had to counter that. You always had to work harder. You always had to uh, had to be more prepared. And I think that is how I've lived life. Maybe I've overdone it at times, but always that you've got to be prepared for everything that comes, which is also really something that happened to her, that I, I could see her doing it in front of me, always being prepared for something that happens and making the most of what comes your way. And uh, and, and I think that in a way inspired me too. Anita, how did that lesson from the winning way apply in your life? Yeah, so like I said, you know, don't let what you cannot do was was definitely the main philosophy uh, and, you know, being positive and being optimistic because you'll find that, you know, sportsmen never make excuses. They're always trying to see, you know, given the circumstances, given the, uh, you know, playing conditions, how do you kind of, you know, uh, make a success of it? And that is exactly how uh, we did that. And because I, obviously I didn't have a mainstream career uh, for uh, a long time, uh, really tried to look at something that would be different uh, and something that could create impact. And then, you know, like I, like we said, you know, after 300 sessions, we decided to write the book. And we thought, oh, how much more are we going to get? And so let's do that. But, you know, surprisingly, uh, we are now on 550. Wow. And we, we refreshed and we updated the book because, you know, we always preach about staying relevant whether it's in business or in sport today, because everywhere there's so much change that everybody needs to stay relevant. And so we updated the book and said, you know, we have to practice whatever we preach. The book is now um, six, yeah, yeah. six years old. And so we need to stay relevant to the audience. It's, it's critical for all of us in our professions, actually, because the younger generation coming coming in inhabits a completely different world. Their, their, their decisions are different. Their choices are different their access to technology and their very easy use of technology is very different. So we are actually fighting a losing battle. We've got to fight really hard to stay relevant. And and if you can, then then that's fantastic. And that that's something that sport teaches us every day as well. You've got to stay relevant to the world of broadcasting has changed so much. You've got to stay relevant. I'm sure you've experienced in your life as well the need to stay relevant all the time. So it's a, it's, and it's in a very our valid life, point. Staying relevant to the audience, you know, because when we started off, the audience was about our age or a little older than us. And now, you know, the audiences that we talk to are as old as our kids. Uh, how are they different? What do they look for, which is different? Uh, because in, if you look at sports, many yeah. of the sports formats have changed. Yeah. Yes. You know, because attention spans have become shorter. Absolutely. You know, there's a lot more data which is being used. There's a lot more technology which sort of has taken away some of the, uh, you know, things that people used to do. Yeah. Uh, has that happened in your life? Because you took a break. Yeah. Then you came back. How did you prepare yourself for this whole business of coming back into the workforce and just reinventing yourself? Tell me about that. You know, when I came back, it was uh, a new generation. And uh, I had to even learn things like PowerPoint. You know, we had never used it. And funnily, you know, whatever you learn comes in very useful later. Sometimes you think, oh, it's not like it's a skill that's unimportant, but you never realize that, you know, that is something that is going to be so useful in the future. So just being surrounded by young people in advertising was great when I went back and, uh, you know, learned it all. So and who then, taught you? you some no, of the yeah, younger actually, kids? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So which now we, of course, like we have the term gig worker, we also have a fancy term called reverse mentoring. Reverse mentoring, absolutely. Yeah. And, and you were actually doing that in your... True, true. My, my internet mentor, my digital mentor is my son. 
I mm. I keep asking him, should I do this and is this right and how do you go about doing this and it's fine. One of the things she also discovered when she came back was the wonderful irreverence that the younger generation has to something that we hold dear. I mean, she went back, she came back from work one day and said, you know, this is what the girls who are working with me are saying that may maybe our, our bosses aren't what we thought they were. There's a wonderful irreverence which prevents people from taking things for granted and keeps us on our toes as well. Uh, when we were growing up, experience bestowed on you all kinds of virtues, including unstinted respect. Mm. You had to admire people. You had to respect them. You believed everything they said was right. And now the kids are saying, but uncle, no. Yeah, yeah. They say and, uncle and, too. Yeah, but no. And it's, uh, and you know, a lot I think happens because the past is no longer a predictor of the future because it doesn't look in any way like the future. So you have to, if you think about the way cricket has changed the game, different formats from test cricket onto the T20. And you've uh, sort of also been a yeah. commentator when you were in your early days in college and yes. you sort of did commentary. How? Why do you think some cricketers have survived these three formats and most haven't? Uh, I'll I'll come I'll come to that in a minute. You talked about how this generation is different. That also explains how the games have how the game has changed. This generation is impatient, and we see younger cricketers as well. We see younger people in the workforce. They're not able to adapt as quickly because they're impatient. They want results very quickly. We I I found as you will as you'll find in every generation that once you give up your core strength, your if your core strength is manufacturing, your core strength is hitting a cricket ball. Your core strength is batting for one and a half days. Your core strength is something else. You have to keep adapting that core strength. Once you've retired, you've come into broadcasting, you're no longer actually playing the ball, but you're telling a story to people. And the people who are who are able to adapt to understand that they're starting a new career were people who found the transition easier to make, who are able, who are willing to give 60-70% of what they gave their first career. No one ever gives 100% to their second career, which I think they should. But people who are willing to give 60-70% to their new career, you'll find that people who worked for 30 years and turned entrepreneur, are they willing to give 100% to their new role as entrepreneur that they were in their role as head of finance or as, as, uh, as CEO of a company? Mm -hmm. So you'll find that the people who came into broadcasting or who went into coaching or who went into whatever uh, allied fields, if they were willing to look upon that as a new career and treat it with the same rigor or similar rigor with which they treated their original career, then they do well. But sometimes you start to carry your experience with you as a banner. You put it up in front of me and say, this is what I've done in life. Then you struggle in your second profession because you've got to give it what you gave your earlier profession. Which is, um, you know, an interesting segue into what I wanted to explore. You know, in sports, when you look at the research uh, about specialists versus mm -hmm. generalists, you know, there are two schools of thought. And very recently, I was reading this book called Range by David Epstein. And he was talking about the Tiger Woods school. So he started playing golf. Uh, you know, his father coached him from the time he was two. And then by the time he was eight or nine, he was already really yeah. supremely good at Serena's it. Serena's parents did too, yeah. Absolutely. Serena Williams, yeah. And, and Agassi then you, as well. Like, huh? and, Agassi. and Andre Agassi, yeah. Absolutely. And you have someone like Roger Federer who played every sport that you can think of in school and college. He was into wrestling, swimming, basketball, skiing, yeah. and also tennis, mm. by the way. It's difficult to imagine Federer as a wrestler, though. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. but he did. And yeah. that's the amazing thing that he says, that he owes his skill as a 
you know, as a tennis player, he succeeded because he did all these different things. So in in our career choice, you know, very often you have this whole dilemma. Is it better to be a specialist? Is it better to be a generalist? And you've spoken to so many business people, Anita. Um, you know, what do you see working well in the world of business? Is it better to be a specialist or generalist you know, or both? Or Yeah. So, so let's talk about the sport first. I think Tiger was lucky or Serena was lucky that they found their passion and they, they kind of realized that they were good at it. Not everybody does that. So it's like, you know, being in medicine, you study, uh, you do the MBBS and everybody learns all of the anatomy. But when you become a specialist, you will never find somebody say, I'll look at the brain and the kidneys. Mm. Right. So if you're playing at that level or, uh, you know, you shouldn't be, you, you can't be a generalist. You, you can't start, be, yeah. I, and I would say even in business, that's the same thing. So how does that fit into, you know, he talked about um, being adaptable. Those who are adaptable actually yeah. survive these yeah. massive but, shifts. adaptable within the genre it, itself. Yeah. Within so the it's, genre. It's, it's almost like saying, I used to do knee surgeries and, and then the keyhole surgery started to come in. So can I do keyhole surgeries? Can I use... Can I use new equipment to do it? But you're still within the same genre. I'm still within the genre of broadcasting. Test cricket broadcasting is a completely different animal from T20 broadcasting. Broadcasting in India is a completely different experience from broadcasting in Australia, where they don't have any advertising. And suddenly, if you're a, if you're a commentator who, who's used to saying 70 for two and then sitting and chatting while the ads are on, you say, oh, excuse me, I've got to be talking all the way through the game because there's no advertising on it. That is the kind of that is that is the kind of adapting. It's not going in from uh, from broadcasting to playing, for example, or, or or something else. Yeah, yeah, and 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 what if we apply the same philosophy that you are talking about to the world of work, workers, and workplaces? Hey, Jenny, did Pankaj Bansal say something about this? Yes. This is what Pankaj Bansal from People Strong had to say. So, if if you look at um, Abhijit, we there were employment days, there are entrepreneurship, and there are days of gig coming in. I need to learn as an entrepreneur how this new world of gig is going to change us forever, right? That's happening. Bruce Lee said, "Be like water." Muhammad Ali said, "Be like butterfly." So I say, if you're in B two C kind of businesses, be like butterfly, very fast, very swift. But if you are in B two B kind of businesses, be like water. You become like customer. So these two things, if you can maintain or manage, you will have a great life. Thanks, Jeannie. Now let's get back to the show. And I think sometimes, you know, I have uh, seen that if you think about your work like a buffet of experiences, mm. you know, you've started with, let's say, the starters, and then you sort of move on towards mm. dessert. I might discover sometime late in my life that, oh, I think I have a sweet tooth and let me focus on that. And then maybe within that, I discover that, you know, I love dark chocolate more. Is that a... Dark chocolate is a very good example to give. You might have given given coffee as another example as well. My my feeling is you must start off trying everything because because very, very few people know what they're good at. In in Agassiz, a very good example in that he hated tennis till he had become a slam champion. He actually hated tennis, but was forced into it by his father. So the Williams sisters were, were different because they, they grew to uh, to like it. Uh, Tiger grew to like it. But if you start very early, it's almost like you are the uh, the vehicle for a parent's ambition. And you can resent that and some, or, or some people can like it. It happened to me. I got, I got pushed by my father. 
into a lot of things, but because we didn't have the option of saying no, I grudgingly said yes and discovered, oops, actually that was not such a bad thing. Mm. So I, I, my suggestion is everyone tries everything till they find what they are good at. And once they know what they're good at, then then attack it, attack it with the vehemence. Yeah. When you say find out what you are good at, does it mean wherever you experience success, is that the definition what of comes what easy comes to easy you, I think. to you, yeah. So your natural talent. Yeah, I'd say I never played to my strengths. But I Wow, enjoy... tell me about that. Well, uh, I'm also <laughs> doing live sessions and we've done so many. And that was not something that came naturally to me. How did you deal with that? Uh, the well, initial zone of discomfort. How do you get out of your comfort zone and move into something which you are unfamiliar? You're not sure whether yeah. you'll succeed. You definitely feel you don't have strengths and yet you've actually made a great success of it. Tell me about that shift. Yeah, two things. I had a partner who was a pro and I think I'm a good learner. Wow. Uh, Yeah, through observation and through small tips and, you know, things like that. And the more you do it, the more you practice, the better you get at it. So uh, that's how. We actually learn from each other. We actually learned from each other because she brought a rigor to my slightly go with the tide and back yourself approach so the rigor that came in through her is is what has sustained the winning way but yeah you need to you, you need to love audiences for example she's she loves doing sessions for 40 50 people i love doing sessions for a thousand people mm. so that, that that's that's a difference between the two of us i would suggest if you're unsure or you're going through a little bad phase you do what what we were taught as children to do you bat in the v you play safe and playing safe brings you back, brings your confidence back. If you're not sure, can I tell that story? Don't. Just stay with what you're, what you're good at, what you're very comfortable doing. And slowly, it's like a plant that takes root and flowers, you know. But till then, you, you do what you are comfortable doing. And slowly, that com- what you're comfortable, that area starts to widen. So that is why in the good old days of Test Match Cricket, they would start off playing only in the V till you've got used to it and then you can play a lot more shots. She plays a lot more shots than, than she did in the past to the extent that I'm on guard these days because I don't know which one line is coming back at me during a presentation. But, you know, like true doubles players, we ha- have different strengths and that really works. Mm. And, and But it's also much tougher to work with somebody who is completely different from... You're telling me? Of course it is. It is, it is different. <laughs> it's, it's very tough working with her because she's so rigorous. She, we, we wrote a chapter. I said, ah, I'm happy with this with chapter four of our book. And she said, no, just rewrite it. No, no, okay. Mm. But so, it works well. It's effective. So it's really what you say is the value of coaching. You know, when, when you are a player, mm. uh, you know, having a great coach can actually make all the difference to your game. And sometimes it could be that uh, you are a beginner and you need a coach, but you could also need a coach when you are super successful. Yes. How does the role of the coach change? What have you seen working well? I think you need different coaches depending on where the team is, uh, depending on the culture of the team, uh, the requirement of the player and all these kind of things. But it's interesting yeah. you should ask that, you know, because when we wrote the book, I had gone to interview Sachin and I was talking to him uh, and somewhere he had said that, you know, Gary Kirsten apparently asked him what he wanted from the coach. And Sanchez apparently said, 
I want a friend. So at that yeah. level, you know, there is no tweaking in the game. There is no no instructions, nothing to be done. You just need somebody who you can trust and, you know, you have somebody to talk to because I guess it must be lonely. Just as you need different leaders for different situations, you mm. need different coaches for different situations. If there's a team that's been losing all the time, India came back from South Africa, 92, 93. I think they appointed Rajit Vardekar as coach. And he said, this team has lost the belief that it can win. And so the role of the coach is far more hands-on there. When you take over a team that's winning, you're only little, you're only tinkering little bits here and there. You're saying, okay, that's your strength. No, maybe just let's let's make that better. If you're if you're coaching a youngster, then your your role is far greater than if if you're coaching a very successful player. If if, if you're coaching someone who's made ten Test hundreds, all you're saying is just be careful. You're falling over a little bit. But just be careful. Your bats just started to go away a little bit. Come back. If you're, what do you do if you're telling if you're coaching Federer? Just be careful. Yeah, just just notice something over there. So coaching people at the prime of their career or coaching very successful people is is very different from coaching people who are who are starting up. I mean, if if you're coaching a management trainee, it's very different from coaching a sales head. So it's 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 very very different. I I what I expect from a producer at, at the stage that I am in my career is just to warn me of. Getting bad habits. Mm-hmm. Cricketers can fall into bad habits. Managers can fall into bad habits. The biggest bad habit a manager can fall into is falling prey to his to his own ego or arrogance or her own ego or arrogance. The batsmen can have bad habits. They might, without realizing it, they've played too much white ball cricket. They're reaching too much towards the ball. The coach says, just hang on, just wait. That's all the coach has to tell you at that level. Is it reasonable to then say that, you know, at an early stage in your career, um, you're looking at getting coached in skills, you know, basic skills do this this way Uh, look around turn here do that so that's the skill coaching whereas when you're looking at somebody who's successful or had a certain kind of previous experience of success and a series of things you're actually talking more about working with the personality of the person is that a valid um, parallel you've seen in the world of business as well yeah i think i think even managers go through or you know senior executives go through the self-belief issue sometimes you know they are lacking in the self belief or there's a dip there and i think a, having a coach kind of you know just helps uh, that kind of hand holding uh, for a while and maybe somebody to talk to in case you are a little lost and looking for direction you know as as we all say sometimes give them a little pat on the back and just remind them that they've been good before at younger level, at lower levels, you need to give a kick up the backside sometimes. Mm-hmm. At senior levels, you probably don't need to give a kick up the backside, but just be the be the dam for the river. Just and it's funny, we've seen yeah. so many su- successful people go through low self-belief. Why they does just that need that Why, why does it happen? You know, you, you would lose. think that uh, when you're successful, you're sort of really, uh, you know, you shouldn't have a problem with self-belief. It's when you fail that yes. your self-belief takes a beating. But then why do successful people... Because they lose too. Mm. Because they lose too and they're not used to losing. So is it tougher to lose after being successful? Yes. And maybe that's what you were referring to. It depends to. on what kind of person you are. Some some people, when they're, when they're at the top of their game, they lose and they say, oh, I don't care, I'll turn up tomorrow morning. They're so full of self-belief. It might actually lead them to losing more, but very often that's an attitude that brings you back quickly enough. The people who are brooders... Mm. And you'll find that the brooders worry so much. Maybe they're the perfectionists. Maybe they worry so much about what they got wrong, that about how they got it wrong, that they carry that brooding mentality into, into the next game. So they need a different kind of coach. There are brooders and there are gamblers. 
so each each has got pluses and minuses of its own mm. but uh, even the even the most successful people go through crises of confidence i've seen some of the best players in the world suddenly play like you know so how did they get this far but that's a phase the best always come back from that phase there's always going to be another day in, the tide always comes in yeah yeah tide always comes in and if you had to look for a coach uh, you know how would you describe yourself to the coach are you a uh, harsha are you a brooder or are you a perfectionist or how would you sort of yeah i i i worry about the little things and sometimes i fall into the trap of if someone else is not doing the little things right i start saying but why is that person not doing the little things right it affected me some time back i've got over it now so just just someone to say look you're going all right because every time i'm presenting a program thinking right what am i doing wrong here rather than thinking what am i doing right here so just someone to say you know you're okay there you're okay there you're okay there because at heart your person may be of slightly lower confidence slightly lower belief so i i would require someone who would keep backing me all the time and i was also like you're telling him how good uh, he is I'll in the find, sense yeah. that you know sometimes people don't know how good they are and you need somebody to tell you saying you know you can do that why don't you take that risk uh, he always talks about actually you know working with foreign networks and how it was so good for him because uh, i think he had very good producers and uh, it wasn't a chalta hai kind of an atmosphere you know they actually helped you and they told you they gave you feedback sometimes in india i think people don't give feedback you you know that better i mean you've handled mm-hmm. you've handled departments she made a two, two very valid points one about feedback how how do we handle feedback do we see feedback as criticism or do we see feedback as an attempt to improve you and the other thing she said and i don't know if you've seen that in your life is that very very few people know how good they are even even the geniuses of the world have no clue how good they are sometimes they believe they're better than they actually are but very few of us actually know how good we are and sometimes we need to be nudged cajoled pushed thrust into situations which test us and which allow us to know how good we can be i and, i benefited and, from that i don't know managers that you have worked with have benefited from that i have i have always seen that you know one of the toughest things to build in your career is uh this constant uh, sort of uh, feedback and self awareness that i do this well i do this better than others i do this worse than this and i need to improve my game on this and so really constantly think about that is if i were to sort of look at how unpredictable sports is at times mm. you know um historically in india people have always shied away from pushing their kids into pursuing professional sports mm. yeah and because uh the time window is really short and you know you need to crunch in a lot more and then you still perhaps need to go back to a traditional job in some cases and sometimes you may not succeed you give it your 100% and you still don't sort of get selected um because others are better or for whatever reason multiple reasons why people don't do that do you think when people um are um, you know they are ready to take risks and choose sports as a career um is that going to change uh, and is that happening more and they've more they've got to be brutally hard on themselves to find out how good they actually are remember before the ipl came around even in cricket which seems to throw up more opportunities than other sport 15 people could play the highest level mm-hmm. the ipl has come around 80 100 people can play the highest level ranji trophy pays decent amount of money for a decent amount of time 3 400 people can play that game If you're playing badminton, you want to be a Saina or a Sindhu. There's two people who reach that level where they've they've done really well for themselves. You've got to ask yourself: Do I have the staying power and the largeness of heart 
for me to be able to go there because sport can have many other dangers along the pathway that maybe an engineering career cannot. So if you want to do engineering, which was the good old-fashioned way for all, for all guys and increasingly luckily for girls, the number of openings today for engineers compared to the number of openings today for sports people, there's no comparison. So if you're an average engineer, the chances are you've got something. Mm-hmm. If you're an average cricketer or an average swimmer, you get thrown out very quickly. Then can, do you have the largeness of heart and spirit to say, right, that's gone. Now I'll fight my way back and do something else. So, so parents who want to push children into sport very early have got to be very hard on themselves and say, does my kid have it in him or her to go the distance? I, and and that, that's extent. a call. That's a call you have to take. Cricket is a very expensive sport too, unlike some other sports. But I'm so happy that a lot of parents these days are making that making that effort for their children. And as Anita often says, increasingly parents are, are not saying what what you're bad at, so let's give you tuition. But what are you good at, so let's make you better. And that's that's a very positive sign for the next gen. You know, my only worry with uh, you know parents putting their kids into coaching is. It's only coaching, not just playing for the fun of it. So, which means, and, and, and very early, you know, parents are looking at, will he make it? Will she make it? I think you should just let yes. children play team sport. So, whatever happens, whether it becomes a career or not, comes much later. But I tell, you know, parents, let your child play some sport, particularly and ideally team sport. Because I think, Sport teaches kids so many things, you know. Just being a good team player is such a worry in corporate life. And people are brilliant, but they are such poor team players. And anybody who's played sport will tell you that, you know, this is what I learned. Collaboration is going to be so important. You talked about the gig world. Collaboration is going to be so important. So if you learn it early through playing sport and enjoying it, Nothing like it. I'm very scared of parents who put their children into academies, coaching academies at seven, eight, nine years old, mm-hmm. because it means you're taking the fun out of sport and making it study and education and win or loss. Children discover how good they can be only if they're having fun doing it. Go and play badminton. See, are you enjoying it? Are you enjoying jumping up and hitting that shuttle down in the opponent's court before that person has got to get there? Is that giving you a great thrill? You know, I played a cover drive today. Wow, I played a cover drive. I want to go back there tomorrow. Instead of saying, I'm going back there tomorrow, is my foot to the pitch of the ball? Is my elbow in the right angle? Is my is my foot facing in the right direction? Oh, that's my civics class all over again. So... Mm. You can't take the fun out of sport as you can't take the fun out of dance, as you can't take the fun out of performing arts. You can't take the fun out of that early in life because people become very good when they genuinely love what they're doing and want to get up the next morning and do it again rather than saying, oh, I have to go to that class again. Or or you know? being so anxious for the kid and for the yeah. parents saying, am I going to make it? You know, Somebody else has done better than me. Yeah. That's too much anxiety too early. It's like telling children you have to get into lower KG admission. At, at four-year-old, a kid learns to fail. Yeah, yeah. That's that's really tragic. Yeah. And and sometimes I think, uh, you know, not being able to experience the ups and downs of just naturally playing a sport in your Correct. neighborhood with five other kids and winning some days, losing some days, or maybe getting onto a continuous streak of winning or losing. And so the cities will never produce sports people again because with the space there is no space to the space they'll calculate FSI and put a building on it. And maybe now it's going to be esports. Yeah, but you know, I, I I don't mind esports because it's still teaching you 
uh, hand hand body control mm-hmm. you, it's still showing you mind to arm uh, coordination and some of these people are so good at doing it yeah i mean I, if you're growing a punch you're probably still not going to be a good esports player because you still got to be active but yeah that it's probably a sign of the times it's a sign of the times in the asian games already but uh, you know does it help you to learn uh, the no. soft skills that you talked about no if you're sure. playing no. Un- unless there's a, there's a team sport in esport mm-hmm. where you're actually playing for each other and saying right i'm going to help you do well tomorrow you help me do well as we say it's not about how many goals you score it's how many goals you're part of so it's you know when you they think should play about outdoors though yeah yeah i'll take what i'll take back what i said they have to play outdoors right. they've got to play uh, they've got to play for each other and learn what it is to to play for each other so i i think it's a similar thing in the world of work uh, you know when you think about people um you may have people from the point of view of technology today it just makes it so easy for people to collaborate across the world but i think it's only when you meet people in person you mm-hmm. sort of build a repo True. in like 15 minutes what numerous uh, you know video conferences uh, may not produce but in a team sport um how does somebody who is an individual player how do they find their own identity because sometimes you know you're surrounded by people who are way better than you and you kind of the team sport um, doesn't quite help you discover yourself because you're kind of constantly you're feeling that hush is good at but you're always good at something mm you're always good at something in a team sport you can be that that center back you know who's slow boy just a big build fellow who moves slow and the forwards are the blue eyed boys who are scoring goals but you're stopping the goals right the forward score 5 you can see it's 6 you still lost the game so you find what you're good at and i i found for example when i was playing cricket i was playing at my school college university level and i i found just by chance that i enjoyed fielding i enjoyed holding a catching a cricket ball came naturally to me and so you become among the more popular players in your team because you become very good at what you are doing that is contributing to a side so you always find something you're good at this and and when you keep trying yeah like john t rhodes created a role for himself that's true yeah so everybody has a role and i guess it depends on how well you do in that role you know how they say that if you put an average person in a good role then the role itself becomes average whereas if you put a good person in an average role then you know the role becomes Yeah, good. So, so if you can't be Abhijit like Bhaduri doing a podcast, you can be the recordist ensuring the podcast is going out. Absolutely, well. <laughs> we are depending on them no, completely. No, yes, there's always something you can do. When you you talked about blue-eyed uh, boys, and you know, I'm going to draw a parallel uh, in the corporate world. You know, you have people who are labeled high potential people, um, and you know, how does a coach deal with a superstar in the team? Because sometimes. you know what's the role of the coach what is the role of the superstar and what's the role of the others who are not superstars because um it's quite likely that somebody is more uh, you know is better at uh, that particular game or that work um what is the how do you see that differently so i think t- team ethic runs um in two ways one is the non negotiables so you'll have you know the discipline and then the practice and the training and things like that that is non negotiable so you you might be the star and you might be the junior most player but you got to do it but having said that i think you know the uh, talented players are valuable and so you need to keep them happy you need to make them feel good so some leeway has to be given but uh, the non negotiables are the non negotiables but you know sometimes if you're not tal- if you're not as talented as somebody else you look at you you know you can tell who's more talented sure i was the school team off spinner for 2 years 
And then this kid turns up in my last year in school. I see him bowl one ball and I said, dude, he's a different level man from me. His ball is just going and it's turning and my ball never did that. So you knew straight away he's, he's, he's different. So you accept the fact that he's, he's different, but maybe I'll work harder. And when you see people in a team who are better than you, it can affect you two ways. When you see they're super talented in the team, it can affect you two ways. Either you can say, oh, I've got no chance. I'll pack up my bags and go. Or, or I say, want to be like that. Or I'll just try harder. I'll just try harder. I can't make 150 in an innings. I'll try and make 60 every single time I go out to bat. It just makes you tougher, you know. It makes you tougher and say, I'll just, I'll just keep trying harder. And then you discover that the super talented can sometimes be super fragile. You know, he talked um, and both of you, you know, mentioned something about adaptability. And I just want to sort of end with one little piece that, you know, your career, you know, has been about statistics, MBA, advertising, a business uh, pundits, um, you know, creating that, a gig yeah. worker, mother, you know, so many different things. What is one thing that you want to share with our listeners about how to become more adaptable? What is it that one should be doing? I think having an open mind and learning constantly from everybody around you. It doesn't matter who it is, whether it's your kids or whether you're, you know, younger colleagues or anybody. There's so many things one needs to learn, especially in this kind of changing world. You learn things every day, whether it's technology and things like that, especially because at our age, I think we struggle most with technology. So everybody teaches you how to, you know, uh, go on social media, how to take good selfies. So much learning. And you, 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 you need to kind of, you know, get along with everybody, especially the younger generation. Not try too hard to kind of look too young and behave uh, and talk like them. But yeah, relate to them in a way. Be interested in what they are doing. Don't be judgmental. That's what I would say. I think women are just stronger. They're just stronger. Women are just stronger because they get to move on and just get going. Men are far too focused on doing one thing and then they get it right and they think, wow, I'm the greatest and I get it wrong and I think it's the end of the world. Now we just got to move on. And I think you learn from watching women multitasking so effortlessly that you just, you just move on. Say, right, I've done that. Now I can do this. But what she said is important. Are you willing to learn from everybody? One of the biggest problems that occur with successful people, and I've seen that as much in management as in sport, is that you start to think I've arrived. And the day you think you've arrived is the day your descent has actually begun. Because if you're not willing to learn anymore, there's always someone who's better than you turning up. You have to keep learning. And that's why adaptability is what we keep coming back to all along. You might be the best player in the world, but the format might change. And then what do you do? Are you still willing to learn? There's a kid who might tell you something about yourself. Do you tell the kid, Chal, kal ke chokre bat. Or do you say, Achha, sikha usne. So are you willing to learn from everybody around you? And that's, that, that's and an invaluable... Yeah. There are always signals. There are people who are telling you things. Are you willing to listen? If you've got, you got ego on your side, you've lost already. And I think, I, I, see, I see successful people strut. When I see people strut, I think, uh, okay, I mean, there's, there's a, a sense a, of entitlement. Nah, there's a stumble next. Just watch. In three steps, you're going to stumble. In, in the life's equivalent of three steps. You've also uh, adapted yourself to the medium as it has changed. Yes. You know, from radio, to, television, uh, YouTube, and you're an influencer on Twitter and all of that. And, what are you trying to learn next? What are you learning? I'm struggling. Honestly, I'm struggling because I find young people taking to something like Instagram so easily. I thought, I'd, I said, oh, I've got, I'm on Twitter. I'm a little bit on Facebook. I understand. And suddenly I'm told, yeah, but you know, like tomorrow's Instagram. I say, okay, but I get to learn Instagram. I've told there's some TikTok on the way. 
it's very difficult to keep pace with what is happening. So when you get to a certain age, you've got to try that much harder. So I find I'm, I'm very comfortable using social media. But what I'm comfortable with is changing overnight. So I don't know. I'm thinking, should I learn TikTok? No, because six months from now, it may be replaced by something else. So you've got, but you've got to be very, very versatile. And I think what helped me enormously and what allowed me to be versatile was that I was not the best in the world at what I did. I didn't have 10,000 runs behind me. If I had 10,000 runs behind me, I would have been this pundit and I wouldn't have needed to learn and I would have become limited. So the fact that you have to be versatile to survive, you've got no, you've got no choice but to be versatile to survive. And today for young people coming into the media, one, they've got to work their backside off. I don't think there's ever in the history of the world been an alternative to working, working your backside off. But can you be versatile? Can you say, right, I'm ready for this. I'm ready for this. I'm ready for this. I, we learn to write 1500 word articles, but I have to say it in 140 characters. Absolutely. So, so I, I, my biggest learning was doing BBC World Service in my formative years where I had to do 45 second and one minute, 10 second reports the whole day in 45 seconds or one minute, 10. One minute, 10 was one minute, 10. One minute, 10 could not be two. It was not allowed. One minute, 10 could be 120. It could be 105, but it could not be more than that. So you learn to become adaptable. You learn to become versatile as you go along, but largely because you have no choice. I mean, the deer in the jungle has got to be versatile. Otherwise, it's someone's meal, right? So when you're, when you're in the position I was in, you had to learn to be versatile. And that's what allowed us, allowed me to learn from her and allowed us to build the winning way as well. You just had to be versatile. And I think the constraints actually bring out our creativity. But thank you ever so much. It was fascinating to hear about your journey, learn about your kind of successes and failures and your perspective about so many different things, you know, media, cricket, business, psychology, all of it. Thanks a lot for coming to the studio. Thank you. Maybe one it was day fun, Abhijit. Maybe one day we should ask you about, about, what, about what you've seen. So, yeah. Thanks. Hey, thank you for listening to this episode of Dreamers and Unicorns of the New Code of Work series. I'm Abhijit Bhaduri and you can find me at Abhijit Bhaduri on LinkedIn and Twitter. This show is brought to you by PeopleStrong, Asia's leading work and HR tech company. For more information, visit their website at newcodeofwork.com. Dreamers and Unicorns is a Made in India production. Editorial producers, May Thomas and Sean Phantom. Producer, Sharanya Subramanian. Assistant producer, Janam Devan. Sound designed and edited by Karthik Kulkarni.